you'll turn with me to Hosea 10, we're going to be continuing on in the book of Hosea. And so far we've seen how God has compared his people Israel to an unfaithful wife. They've committed spiritual adultery, they've improperly worshipped him, and they've also worshipped other gods. Instead of loving God who loves them, they love cakes of raisins, they love decadence, they love wealth, they love pleasure. And this isn't something that just started either. It's been going on for a long time. So if you've been here the last couple weeks, um, we've talked a little bit about judgment and discipline. We're going to do that again today. It's exciting, right? So I think it's important for us as we're going into this to remember um, who Israel is. We need to remember that this isn't a message to the world at large, though it is applicable to them. It's a message to God's people. It's not a message about how to become God's people. It's a message about how God's people are to live in light of his redemption and the consequences when they don't. It's a message to the people he has chosen, the people he has entered into covenant with, the people he has redeemed from slavery, the people he has set free, he's given his law to, to show them how to live in their freedom, the people he has lived among, he has tabernacled with, the people to whom he has given the promised land to whom he gave the good King David and the promise that there will be and always be a Davidic king on the throne. They're his people whom he loves. But after the death of David's son Solomon, the kingdom split north and south. Israel, the northern kingdom, who we're addressing here, rebelled against the house of David. So that was in 930 B.C., Not only did they rebel against the king that God had chosen, but when this split happened, the temple, God's special presence among his people, was in Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom of Judah. And their new king made a bad choice. He was worried that if his people kept going to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, that they would leave him, that they would return to the Davidic king, that he would lose his throne. So he made two golden calves to represent Yahweh to the people. He said, Israel, here are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. And he set up his own system of worship. He built other temples. He anointed priests. He set feast days. He made sacrifices. He had offerings, and he made these calves. All of this flies completely in the face of how God has told them he is to be worshipped. So that was in 930 B.C. So over the next 200 years, Israel continued in this without fail. Every king continued in this, did what was evil in the sight of God, Not one good king. It's been bad for 200 years. So as we continue on with this message of discipline again today, remember that these are God's people whom he loves, whom he has already redeemed, whom he has freed, whom he has made prosperous, 
And they are a people who have not worshipped him properly in 200 years. Who have worshipped him in ways that go directly against what he's commanded. Ways that were invented for political reasons. To maintain power. And who have worshipped other gods and trusted in other things. Yet God has been patient. He has protected them. He has sent messengers to call them back to him. He's even made them prosperous from a material perspective. But they have continued in their rebellion against him. So with that in mind, hear God's word through Hosea chapter 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own ways and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbal on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Michael Scott, that's a good segue, right? The regional manager for Dunder Mifflin Paper Company was interviewed by the CFO, David Wallace, for a job at the corporate office. The exchange went like this. David says, what do you think your greatest strengths as a manager are? Why don't I tell you my greatest weaknesses? I work too hard. I care too much. And sometimes I can be too invested in my job. 
Okay, and your strengths? Well, my weaknesses are actually strengths. Oh, yes, very good. What if it's actually the other way around? What if our greatest strengths are actually our greatest weaknesses? What if what we view as assets are actually liabilities? We all have this tendency to trust in our own ways, in the money we have saved, in the jobs we have, in the plans we've made, in the work that we've done, in the freedom that we have, in the sincerity of our worship. So did Israel. What we're going to see this morning is that if God's people put their hope and trust in anything other than him, he will take those very things. The very things Israel relies upon the most, their greatest strengths, will be removed. They are actually weaknesses. And the three areas we're going to see that this morning are in their worship, in their freedom, and in their strength. First, we see God will remove their worship, which is false worship. Kind of the biggest chunk of this passage, verses 1 to 8. As they're prosperous, they build more altars. They made the pillars nicer. And they didn't think what they were doing was wrong. They put their money where their mouth is. They are sincere in their worship. We see in verse 5 that they rejoice over the golden calf and over its glory. And I think it's helpful to remember that they didn't view this calf as some god made out of a cow, but they believed that they were worshiping God through this image, directly contrary to what um, the second commandment would say, but it's what they were doing. And these verses center on the removal of this calf. We see it where they tremble because of it. They mourn its loss. They are put to shame when the representation of their God is given as tribute to the great king in Assyria. Their God cannot stand up to him. Now, they did worship other gods alongside Yahweh as well, and those are destroyed, and thorns and thistles will grow up on their altars. They will be abandoned and uncared for. And where does this leave the people? They're crying out for the mountains to fall on them, for the hills to crush them. They want to die. They've been worshiping and investing in false gods and false worship. And the Lord says, no more. And when he brings it about, they're utterly devastated. But see, too, what comes out of their worship. It's not something that's done that has no consequences for the people. It seeps into everything. You see, in verse 2, their heart is false. In verse 3, they admit that they don't fear the Lord. In verse 4, they're liars who don't keep their word, who make worthless promises. And then out of that, they're rendering judgments that are like poison. Their false hearts lead to false words that lead to injustice in the community. These effects are thorough. The object and the practice And the practice of our worship affects all of our relationships, for good or for evil. That's easy for us to kind of pounce on Israel here, to see their sin with the golden calf. But, I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a second. It's what your nation and your family has done for eight to ten generations. 
ongoing. It's all you know. Your country has been prosperous. Things have been pretty stable until the last decade or two. How could it be wrong? You're God's chosen people. Those prophets, they're just calling you to this other tradition because they want your nation back. They want it back joined to Judah. See how easy it can be to fall into these things? We're not all that different. It can be easy for us to fall into this false worship as well. We may not have a golden calf, but look at how we're shaped by the things around us, how the national identity has affected the church in America. Look at how political tribes and our political moment affect messages that we'll reject, right? Don't talk to me about social justice. That has nothing to do with the gospel. Or don't talk to me about sexuality. God is a God of love, and love is love. Or messages that we must preach, that if we don't preach sermons against critical race theory or whatever else, then we're cowards who don't care about the truth, who don't hold to God's word. Church, we must worship God as his word directs us, not how his culture directs. We are the bride of Christ. To be faithful to clarion calls of culture instead of his word is to worship him falsely and to lie to the world about who he is. We're misrepresenting him to the nations. We must always be reforming, always searching the scriptures, always searching our own hearts. We celebrate the Reformation today. It's a movement that is very much a return to biblical worship, as Luke mentioned. After a long time of the church looking not that different from Israel, read some church history about what's going on in the geopolitical schemes in Europe as this is happening. It's nuts. Here's what Martin Luther had to say when he was asked if he would recant his teaching at the Diet of Worms. He says, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. By God's grace and his spirit at work in us, may we be of like conviction. May our worship practices and our emphases be shaped by the whole counsel of God's word and not what is culturally or politically expedient. But this doesn't only apply to the church as a whole, but also to us as individual members thereof. It can be easy to falsely worship God, to be sincere in what we're doing, but not in accord with what he commands. One of the ways we can do this that we even see in our passage here is that we can support it financially, right? They built more altars, they improved their pillars, but their hearts were false and they made empty oaths. We should give generously to God's kingdom. But that cannot be all. 
For some of you, it might be easy to give, whether that's writing a check or giving time in service, but you only come to worship once or twice a month when it's convenient and you don't have something else going on, when God calls his people to gather weekly, or you're harboring bitterness, anger, or hatred of other people in this room, when Jesus says you should leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. If we're only willing to do what we want when it's easier for us and not what God calls us to, then are you really, really worshiping him? Do we actually know who God is? Do we actually love him? Do we actually know his love and forgiveness in Christ for us? Do we rejoice over him and his glory or in something else? God will not countenance false worship, no matter how sincere. God will remove false worship. He will also remove Israel's freedom. In verses 9 to 11, we see how Israel has used their freedom. It goes back in history a little bit, referencing Gibeah. This comes from Judges 19 to 21. Um, you can go read that later if you want, but there's this just act of utter wickedness done in Gibeah, and the tribe of Benjamin steps up to protect them for their wickedness. And the other 11 tribes are gathered together against them, and the tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out, but God spares them. And that's the last, uh, last passage in the book. Chapter 21 is the last chapter in Judges there, and it ends with the refrain that's repeated throughout the book. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You do you. I'm going to do what I want. God says, you're still doing that. As the unjust were defeated there, I will discipline you. Not by gathering the other tribes, but by gathering the nations against you. You will no longer be free, but you will be bound. Then he reiterates it with a more agrarian picture. Ephraim, which is the name Hosea often uses for Israel, was, trained, was a trained calf that loved to thresh. So you are my people that I spared from the yoke. I spared your fair neck. I let you work freely. But now you will be put to the yoke. Again, this idea of being bound and constrained. You're not walking free anymore because you have misused and abused your freedom. You have used your freedom for iniquity. And so it will be taken. God had given them their freedom. They were slaves. And he delivered them. He gave them the law to show them how to live as his people. How to live with this freedom. God's commands aren't oppressive. They're protective. It's easy to see God as this killjoy if we think we'll find joy in worldly pleasures and pursuits. I've been there, done that. It's empty. He uses and abuses others. But if we realize that we're actually made to find joy in God, to enjoy him forever, that he is actually good, 
then we can trust in his protective hand. This is kind of the constant conversation in our house with Lucy, our two-year-old. She pretty much has free reign of the house, but there are some rules, like don't put the little small toys with the baby doll heads in your mouth so you don't choke, right? We want you to live. Don't climb on that dollhouse because you're about the least coordinated little girl I've ever seen, and you will definitely fall, and you'll be hurt, and so on and so forth. We say these things because we love her. God gives us commands because he's a good father who loves us. That's the humbling prayer that I pray with Lucy in the morning. God, help Lucy to listen and obey and help her to know that we love her and only want what's best for her. Right, and then I pray that and then I think, yikes, that's me too. God, help me to listen and obey. Help me to know that you actually love me and only want what's best for me. If we're honest, we're all a bunch of perpetual two-year-olds. But praise God that he is a more loving and patient father than I am. And when we continue in disobedience, he will discipline us for our good. He will strap us in the timeout chair if that's what's needed. But man, we do not like being told what to do. We're all about our freedoms, America, right? We distrust institutions. We don't like someone having authority over us. Fortunately, this often bleeds over to our Christianity. Christ has freed us from our sin, and now we can do whatever we want. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free, amen? We love that verse forget that we're brought into his kingdom which makes him our king sets us under him just a few verses later after Paul says that he says you were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth wait so my freedom actually means obedience don't know if I like it quite as much now And a few verses later, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The law doesn't justify you. Obedience to it doesn't save you. It never did. It didn't for Israel either. Only Jesus can. But it shows us how to live a life that is actually free. If you're in Christ, you are now free from slavery to sin so that you might obey. We often think of the Christian life or Christianity as mere faith and belief, but it's not. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but true faith is never alone. It results in us walking in the good works that God prepared for us beforehand. Even in the Great Commission, where Jesus commanded, We think about this conversion, but how does he end it? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Right? They're not set up to live as a bunch of free individuals going wherever they want, but they're to be followers of Jesus. 
One commentator puts it like this. He says, freedom in scripture is not a license to sin, but expresses itself in a devotion to what is good. That's why Peter writes that we are to live as people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. How do you use your freedom? To get and do what you want? Or to love God and neighbor? Israel has used their freedom as a cover-up for evil, and they are about to lose it. They are about to be bound. So God will remove Israel's false worship and their freedom. He will also remove their strength. We see this in verses 13 to 15. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. It will be as at this place. No one knows about this battle that's there, but you get how bad it is where even mothers and children are killed together. It's going to be bad. They have trusted in themselves and in their manipulations and machinations, in their warriors and fortresses. So that's exactly what God is going to take away from them. Their fortresses will be destroyed. Their plotting will come to nothing but defeat. What do we trust in to protect us? As a church, we often trust in the religious liberty in our country. Trust in the Constitution. Some of us trust in guns. Others trust in the government. Not both, though. We think if we can get the right politicians in office, then we'll be protected. We trust in the fact that we live in the United States We're going to be fine, even if we're going through a tough time right now. Or individually, we trust in our retirement accounts. We trust in our insurance plans or not. We trust in our careers, in our parenting, in our families, in our planning, in ourselves. None of these are bad things in and of themselves but they make poor objects of trust. All of these can disappear just like that. And if they're hindering us from actually trusting in the Lord, the only one who actually has the authority and the power to protect us, to keep us, the one who holds us fast, that preserves us in such a way that not one hair can fall from our heads apart from his will, if they're hindering us from trusting in him, we would be better off if they were gone. If they were taken away. As good as those things can be, they are weak and tyrannical gods. If we put them in the Lord's place. And our Father cares for us too much to let these fictions stand. As we cling to these with closed fists, our options are we either open our hands, put them in their rightful place, or God will pry them away from us, and it's going to hurt. 
In his discipline, God is going to take away the very things that they value most. What they saw as their greatest strengths were actually their greatest weaknesses because they were the very things that the people put their hope and trust in instead of God. Their worship, their freedom, their strength, all these good things, these good gifts from God, but when they are directed to the wrong ends, only lead to this multiplication of sins against God and neighbor. So what's the remedy? Astute observers, notice I skipped verse 12 earlier. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. As we've seen throughout these judgment passages in this book, The Lord stands ready to forgive, ready to be found. It is time to seek the Lord. What does that mean? We usually think of it in kind of these strictly spiritual terms. I'll seek the Lord by reading my Bible and praying. Good. Please do those things. We cannot merely do those things. If you're cheating on your wife, you can't expect her to forgive you because you go and ask for forgiveness while you're continuing to cheat on her. But that's what we do when we seek the Lord while continuing in our sin, continuing to live completely contrary to what he calls us to. It means that we have to actually reform our lives. Sow for yourselves righteousness by the power of God's Spirit at work in us. We must seek to obey Him. We must turn from our sin and walk in His ways. Seeking to do what is right in His sight. Seeking to please Him. It says we will reap steadfast love. We will feast on His covenant faithfulness. We will actually see him keep all of his promises because that's what he does. But we must break up our fallow ground. These areas in our lives that have gone untouched, where our assumptions and our motivations have gone unexamined, these areas where we have not applied the gospel, these cordoned off corners of our hearts and our lives that we have not given to Jesus You can have this much, but not that. It must be broken up. If we think we can hold on to our sin or have some plan B or way out, then we're fools. Let us heed this warning to Israel. They ignored the message. They plowed iniquity. They reaped injustice and ate the fruit of lies and were disciplined thoroughly for it. Let us seek the Lord with all our hearts and lives our hearts and lives until he rains righteousness upon us. 